Welcome to Godly Parenting Part 2. This is the sequel to our very famous Godly Parenting that we published probably 10 years ago. It's been a long time uh, since I wrote a parenting lesson like this, but now that we've been parenting for 10 years at the minimum and then two other kids have come along, we have a little bit more experience. Plus, I've watched some of you succeed and fail, and so that always gets thrown into the hopper. Our fourth lesson that will be coming in a few weeks, I'm talking to ministry friends and getting their input on what they did and didn't do right. Um, one of our most famous lessons from the last time was uh, regrets from spirit-filled parents. Sometimes you can learn from pain more than anything else. And so I, I appreciate it when parents are honest to share what they did right and what they did wrong because that helps us not walk, mark, uh, march down the wrong path. So this is lesson two of godly parenting. Goliaths make for a horrible inheritance. How many of you would recognize that that's probably a true statement? Shotguns are a good inheritance. Pocket watches are a good inheritance. Maybe grandma's vintage Barbie doll collection. That might be a good inheritance. Land, collectible car, property, horse, but not a Goliath. Nobody wants to go to the reading of the last will and testament. And uh, for my favorite grandson, Billy, I leave Goliath. He's older, but still angry. And he will destroy your life because he, I was too lazy to destroy him myself. So that's the heart and message of this lesson. So let's read, because I have a lot of reading to do. This isn't like my usual curriculum. I've just kind of laid it out almost as a sermon, so just follow with me here. First verse is Proverbs 13:22a. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Does it even say a holy man, a righteous man, or an anointed man? Just a decent man. A decent person has enough foresight to leave something to his grandkids. And we're gonna leave something, whether it's a name recognition, whether it's debt, whether it's shame, whether it's insecurity, we're going to leave an inheritance whether we mean to or not. So an inheritance is one of the few things you can actually control after you die. Once you're dead, you can't do much, but you can certainly control the legacy and the inheritance you leave. The big picture, long-term vision of parenting should be focused on setting our children up for success after they leave home. When they turn 18, according to our culture, it should not be a time of, whoo, get them out of the house. It should be, all right, here's even more nerve-wrackingness because we've got to see if they're going to win or not. For too many, kicking them out of the home is, is relief, and it shouldn't be. It should be the next stage of parenting because now you've got to pray more fervently to see if your training stuck or not. Our, our bigger vision is not living to the weekend. Our bigger vision is not living towards their milestone of riding a bike or learning to talk or walk or learning how to make the championship team. Our bigger vision should be, what are they going to do in 25 years? From the time you hold that baby in the delivery room, you should be thinking, what's this child going to be in 25 years? Because what they will be at 25 will be your responsibility and your fault. That's the reality of it. Babies are completely neutral. And I've heard from time to time, well, I just can't do anything with my kids. And sometimes we've told some of you, let my wife and I have your kid for a week. We will prove to you that you are the problem. Because if I have your child for a week, they will not come back to you the same. I will spend the first three days getting you out of them, spend the last four days putting discipline, love, and righteousness in them, and you won't recognize your kid in seven days. So it's not the child. It's the parent. Part of godly parenting is you being a godly parent. The other half is you being a parent. Making the baby is the easiest part. 
From there, it's pushing a boulder uphill the next 25 years. If you're lazy, don't have sex. Because you run the risk of making a baby and bringing life into the earth and then sending them to hell. Many Christians have raised babies just to send them to hell. That, that should not be our testimony. This can be called a spiritual inheritance. Not all inheritances are natural. That is money, possessions, or property. Nor are they all dispersed upon our death. Uh, you don't have to wait till someone dies to give them an inheritance. We recommend in our death curriculum that when you turn about 60, 65, start giving away your possessions now so you can watch your grandson enjoy that pocket knife or that deer rifle or watch your granddaughter enjoy that bracelet or that ring or that brooch or whatever. Why do we always have to wait till we die to get rid of our trinkets? Give it away now so you can watch them enjoy it. A spiritual legacy, victory, and faith-filled attitudes are also an inheritance but they are ones dispersed while we are yet raising our children. In the end, bequeathing a massive estate to our child is pointless if it also includes our sins and insecurities. I don't want Grandpa's ranch if I get his alcoholism with it. I don't want Grandma's five-carat diamond ring if I get her lust and insecurity with it. Give me victory. Better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Better is nothing but peace and quiet than a great inheritance and you have a bunch of strife and misery. Our job as parents is to pioneer as much of the kingdom in our homes and marriages as possible. To the end, our children would be raised and saturated in the presence of God. Perhaps the greatest legacy and inheritance we can leave our kids is that of victory and faith. Obtaining victory in our private lives not only benefits us, but it also benefits our children and grandchildren. So, Think about the kids that are raised in a home full of pornography. Because even if dad is secretly watching porn on his phone and not even mama knows, those demons are in the home and those children are being ministered to by those spirits. Now, that spirit of lust won't stick on every kid because the spiritual chemistry won't work that way. But if you've got four kids, probably one and a half of them are going to have lust issues because dad does. Same with drinking, same with smoking. Um, we'll, we'll address the, the horrible doctrine called generational curses, which is a horrible doctrine. It's not biblically accurate. It's not even hardly biblically rooted. It came about in the late 90s as a way for TBN to make more money. But now it's kind of mainstream and charismatic poor doctrine. There's no such thing as generational curses, just generational flesh. In the 90s, if you had a generational curse, you had to call up that TBN minister and give a $100 offering and they'd break the curse for you. I'm redeemed. I don't need you to pray for me. Amen. So don't fall into that bad late 90s TBN doctrine that made a lot of ministers really rich. Because now I've run into that doctrine everywhere, and it's so mainstream, but there's no biblical foundation. We've been redeemed from the curse. Furthermore, Exodus 20, verse 5, where they try to make it come from, we quote that verse here in a minute, says uh, uh, that basically I will curse those to the third and fourth generation that hate me. It doesn't even use the word curse the third and fourth generation to them that hate me. So Pastor Vaughn would have always said, well, do you hate God? Well, no, then it doesn't apply to you. Amen. But bestowing mercy and loving kindness to a thousand generations, how come TBN never taught the thousand generations of blessing to them that, because you don't get an offering off of that. A thousand generations to them that love me. Do you love them? Yes. Of course you do. Then blessing. Amen. Anyway, please just read your Bible a little bit deeper than the TBN preacher. 
I don't mean to pick on them, but they were all there was in the late 90s, milking grandma for her silverware. Should have brought about a revival, but the television station didn't. The enemies of our family, I guess I should read that last sentence. Obtaining victory in our private lives not only benefits us, but it also benefits our children and grandchildren. My grandfather came home from World War II and went back to the Methodist church, was a deacon for 50-plus years, raised all of his kids in the house of God. His brother came back from World War II, hated God because of what he saw at the Battle of Okinawa, never went back to the Methodist church again. My brother, excuse me, my grandfather and his brother lived on the same farm in Louisiana, not even a quarter mile apart, uh, maybe a quarter mile apart. You can see their houses. So my, brother, my grandfather and his brother married two sisters because you can't get any more perfect psychological experiment than this. So Papa and Uncle Robert married two sisters, Granny and Aunt Normie. They each had three kids, two boys and a daughter. They each had two kids. Those, numbers, those genders didn't work out quite as equal. Uncle Robert never went back to the Methodist church. None of my second cousins, actually those would be third cousins, none of my third cousins are in church. On my grandfather's side, all of us whose parents were raised in church, two of us are pastors. The rest of us are in church except for one cousin. Because grandparents set children up and grandchildren up for legacy. It is on my Uncle Robert's side that the lesbian gets married at Christmas. One of my dearest cousins, she's a lesbian now, lives in the Keys, She'd been a lesbian for a long time. She was gorgeous when we were in high school, and now she looks stereotypical. Because Grandpa came back from World War II angry at God and refused to bless his family. But the real fruit of it didn't come about till the grandchildren. And now when all the grandkids, some of them shacked up for years, some of them went off to Europe to hang out with guys they met online and the year 2000. Can you imagine hooking up with somebody met online 20 years ago online? Their grandkids or the great-grandkids and I'll be even worse. So please hear me. Before you get married and before you have kids, you better make sure you're in this for the long haul, realizing you could curse your entire lineage to hell by being a mediocre Sunday morning saint. And how you raise your kids will prove what's going to happen with your grandkids. And if your kids don't serve God, your grandkids sure won't. Amen. This is a serious subject. This is why the nation is in the condition that it's in, because of mediocre Christianity. The enemies of your family, every human being, uh, excuse me, every human brings to their marriage some enemy. Be it lust, insecurity, greed, laziness, perpetual infirmity, addiction, etc. This is why we also encourage you to master yourself while you're single. Marriage fixes nothing. Marriage fixes nothing. Marriage fixes nothing. Marriage brings everything to the surface. Every human being brings to their marriage some kind of enemy. Lust, insecurity, greed, debt, etc. These are the mountains in our lives providentially given that we might have something at which to aim our faith. So everybody brings something, so we condemn nobody for what they bring. This is the mountain given that you must conquer. It gives you something to aim at your faith at. If you don't have mountains, you have no need of faith, but by the very fact you've been given faith indicates somewhere there's a mountain. 
They are given to us to prove us. Consider the parallel in the time of the Judges. Judges 3, 1 through 4. Now these are the nations which the Lord left in Israel on purpose. To prove Israel by them, even as many of Israel had not known all the wars of Canaan. That would be Joshua's generation of battles. Only that the generations of the children of Israel might know to teach them more, at least such as before knew nothing thereof. So this is saying there, after Joshua and the elder generation died off, there were still enemies left so that the new generation could have some experiences and have something to learn with and have something to fight. There will always be something left in your life to battle because you need to know how to use faith. Namely, five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites that dwell in Mount Lebanon from uh, Mount uh, Baal Hermon, uh, later became just Mount Hermon, unto the entering in of Hamath, and they were left to prove Israel by them to know whether they would hearken unto the commandments of the Lord which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So we see here that Joshua came in with his generation. They did a lot of battle, cleared out a lot of enemies, started inhabiting the land. But the Lord promised in Deuteronomy, I won't give you the land all at once. I'll give it to you little by little. This is a fulfillment of that. This is 80 years later. Then there, after Joshua, after 40 years, and there was the generation of the elders. They continued to battle. Now we enter into the time of the judges. There are still enemies left. And that's good and acceptable because this new generation has to learn to trust God and to go to war because that's part of life. Part of parenting isn't doing everything for your kids. It's teaching them how to do stuff for themselves as well. It isn't fixing every problem for your kids. It's teaching them how to fix the problem so they have some responsibility and faith. God doesn't do everything for us all at once. He wants us to grow our faith and learn to conquer giants on our own. Yes, he can do anything he just about wants to. Obviously, he can't sin. But he wants us to stand in faith and defeat things. And the bigger the opposition, the more your faith must grow to beat it. So we have these enemies here, five lords of the Philistines, Canaanites, Sidonians, and Hivites. Some, fil- um, some familiarity with Israel- Israelite geography is necessary to appreciate this list of remaining enemies. These nations, the Philistines, Canaanites, Sidonians, and Hivites, were all on the southwestern or northwestern sides of Israel. That basically means, if you're looking at me, if, if my torso here is the nation of Israel, over here's the Jordan, here's the Mediterranean, Israel pressed in and rooted out all the enemies except for the Philistines down here and the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites up here because they pushed in. Like the Battle of the Bulge, the only enemies were left at top and bottom, but there's still enemies left because Joshua was responsible and the elders were responsible, but they could only do so much in their lifetime. Thank God there was something left over for the young generation to learn on. Their kingdoms were in the territories God's people had not yet pressed into to conquer. To us, they represent the enemies that Joshua's generation was not able to overcome because they ran out of time. It was the will of God that they were left for the next generation to conquer. It gave the following generation a test. So I have some parenting questions. What enemies have plagued your family or lineage? You don't answer out loud. You can write it down if you want. Because if you're alive right now, you have something you've inherited from your family. You might even say, I'm just like my mother like this, or I'm just like my dad. And that might be a bad thing. I think all of us have inherited something that's bad from our parents. I'm a worrywart like mama. I'm a nervous Nelly like my dad. Or I'm horrible with money. Or uh, it seems like my family's just always been sick. 
What enemies have plagued your family or lineage? Number two, what are you going to do to defeat them? Because if you don't defeat them, you give them to the next generation, your kids, to deal with. Is that a worthy inheritance? Number three, with which enemy have you made an illegal peace treaty? Well, it's just wine. We're just social drinkers. Why drink at all in this culture? This isn't ancient Israel. Your name's not Timothy. You're not Jesus. This isn't the marriage of Canaan to Galilee. Get you some Welch's grape juice. You'll be fine. No, the reason you can't quit is because you're an addict, and that's a demon. So now you have a demon in your home ministering to you and your kids, and you're justifying it by saying, well, it's just wine. Jesus drank wine. He didn't drink Jack Daniels. It's not like I'm drinking bourbon or Tennessee whiskey. No, you're still an alcoholic. So what do you think your kids are going to be ministered to as they grow up? It's not a generational curse. It's generationally poor parenting. Number four, what, if any, enemy can you see yourself running out of time to defeat? Realize that that enemy may quite possibly be part of your inheritance to your children. I would say that mothers, women, should learn how to master their emotions because children learn to handle or children learn how to process emotions by watching their mothers do it. I, um, sadly, I saw a video clip a few weeks ago. It kind of shocked the Internet. Maybe you saw it. These police were going into, um, actually they were visiting uh, an inner city area, and this little boy, four-year-old boy, comes up and starts slapping the police officer saying, I told you to get away from me, B. How many of you saw that video clip? Yes, yeah, Sarah, you work with children for the government's sake. You saw it. Uh, where do you think that child learned how to process that kind of response from? Mom and dad. Probably dad beating his mama. So when moms are insecure or emotionally unstable, that's where little girls learn to process. When dads are violent and emotionally insecure and unstable and always yelling and shouting, that's what boys will learn to do. We're quiet this morning. Is it because we all have the church facade? Because everybody has a church facade. I have pastored long enough to clean up messes in private to think, I would have never thought this was you in private. I always thought you were a lovely worshiper. Everybody has a church facade. That would be called religion. And it's not praiseworthy. What if, enemy, what if any enemy can you see yourself running out of time to defeat? Realize that enemy may quite possibly be part of your inheritance to your children. Do you want to give your children the inheritance of emotional instability? Crying at the drop of a hat over nothing. Or do you want to give them Joshua and Caleb kind of faith that says, it hurts, but we're well able. Let's do something about it. It's up to you. Your children will become what they behold, which also means dads have to be the discipler of their wives. So wives can grow up too. If wives never grow up, the children will have nothing to look up to because children spend a bulk of their time around mama. Even if mama works, children still spend a bulk of their time around mama. So if dads are not discipling their wives into paths of righteousness, then mamas don't get to come up as wonderful and beautiful as they may be. So dads are ultimately the one to blame for any short-circuiting in parenting. This is why you never marry a man 
weaker than you. Marry a man who can lead you, not beat you, not berate you, not yell at you, not growl at you, a man who will lead you in paths of righteousness. Some women in our culture fall for the man who's weaker because they're just used to steering him like they saw mama steer their daddy. And so the generation perpetuates the sin of Jezebel attitudes, not full-fledged Jezebels, just attitudes of unbalanced marriages and when generation spirals out of orbit. To me, this is an easy thing to solve. Just be biblical. Be patient. Don't be lusty. Grow up and march on for Jesus. Does your legacy include undefeated Philistines? During the time of the judges, each judge from Othniel to Samson, Othniel being the very first one, Samson being the last one in the book of Judges, they had a different enemy to fight and subdue for the benefit of Israel. The first judge to contend with the Philistines was Shamgar. I'd like to meet a kid named Shamgar. That's a tough name. He would own the playground. He would be the one poking kids with sticks because he killed Philistines with an ox goad. Just that name alone says, pick up a stick and poke somebody with it. Please, if you want to use it, I'd like to have a kid in my church named Shamgar. <laughs> he slew 600 Philistines with an ox goat and suppressed them for a season. The most anointed to contend with the Philistines was Samson. From all appearances, he was anointed and called to totally put down the Philistines once and for all. Our question is, does your legacy include undefeated Philistines? Samson failed to destroy the Philistines. Samson lived life. He did some great things, but he mostly served himself. This might describe some of you. Live life, do some great things, but did you really beat anything? We've been really harping on it for, I don't know, maybe the last 10 years, that your life should cover some territory and do something. You should die a little bit further from the tree than the mama and daddy dropped when they dropped you. The apple should be, they, they say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. You ought to ask God, pick me up, Lord, and chuck me so far from the orchard. Oh, Lord, just chuck me. Get an angel. How about just a woodchuck? Could a woodchuck adopt me? Take me home at least 50 feet away and let me spring up there. But unfortunately, the, the adage is the apple does not fall far from the tree. You should. You should. This isn't little house on the prairie. We're going to add an addition to the house and you're going to raise the grandkids 20 feet from me. This is not those days. He died prematurely and failed to finish his race. He left the Philistines as an inheritance for Eli, the next judge in chronological order. Eli attempted to battle the Philistines, but, but the lack of holiness under his leadership ensured defeat. He failed to totally crush the Philistines. Eli did some great things, but failed to discipline his sons and purify Israel. He never finished his race. He and his sons died prematurely. So that might be some of you. You did some great things. You maybe were some leadership for a little bit. But because you didn't discipline your sons, your sons were sons of Belial. Even though you were a high priest, your sons were perverts. Even though you were the high priest, your sons were perverts. And judgment befalls everybody and the Philistines roll on. We have to take responsibility. You know, it might be, be better instead of crying over your prodigal, repent. Because once you truly repent, there's no more tears to shed. Once you truly repent and, and ask the Lord to show you everywhere and in each place you failed, because you are responsible for your prodigal. Once you can see it, you can fully repent, and then there's no more traction left to mourn over. Nothing left to stick at you. Say, yeah, I already acknowledged that, and I can repent. There's nothing more I can do. 
Yeah, I acknowledge that. I've repented. There's nothing more I can do. The worst thing about a prodigal is you keep crying for the next 40 years of your life. What's that? What? Either you repented over it or you're still ashamed of it because you've never truly repented because you refuse to acknowledge it. it's your fault. You can say, yes, it was my fault, but bless God, I see better. And if I could go back in time, I would whip that kid so much more. I would see through their lies, their hypocrisy, their manipulation, and their devil so much more. And I don't feel bad about it anymore. I've repented. I'm clean with my God. I've delivered them to Satan for the destruction of their flesh that their spirit might be saved. In the day of the Lord, that I might get to see him again in heaven because I probably won't get to see him the rest of my life because they're prodigal. Amen. Eli left the Philistines as an inheritance for his spiritual son, Samuel. Thanks, Dad. Samuel only temporarily suppressed them, leaving them as an issue for Saul, the first king of Israel. He did some great things, but he was a poor father. Samuel, great prophet, boy prophet. None of his words fell to the ground, but apparently not those that said, boy, I'm going to spank you if you don't stop that. Because his sons were sons of Belial too. He must have learned that from his spiritual father, Eli. His failure in parenting provoked Israel to desire a king. His kids were so bad, the nation said, we don't want them to rule over us. Give us a king. Can you imagine being such a bad spiritual leader, such a bad pastor, such a bad elder, that your kids have a testimony that we don't want them to replace you. Give us somebody else. It's truly the testimony of Samuel. He's a great guy. This is one of his black eyes. I love the Bible because it doesn't pull punches. Samuel's sons were sons of Belial. They were next in line, and they said, we don't want your sons to rule over us. Make us a king. Saul did some great things, but never finished his race. Excuse me, Samuel. Um, his failure in parenting provoked Israel to desire a king. He left the Philistines as an inheritance for Saul. King Saul was terrified of the Philistines, not knowing what to do about their oppression and legislation. He was nervous about their legislation. You can study 1 Samuel. It talks about the, the Philistines were still oppressive and influential. They would not allow the, uh, the Israelites to have any tools of iron, not even for plowing, because they might make them into swords or bows and arrows. So he was, he was upset even about legislation, but would never do anything about it. He was even more vexed by their giant champion, Goliath, until a young shepherd named David arrived. Saul did some great things, but never finished his race. He left the Philistines as an inheritance for David. So how many generations are we into this now? One, two, three, four, five. So we might say neither Samson nor Eli nor Samuel nor King Saul was even a good man because the inheritance they've left is oppressive. You're quiet in here because you're thinking about what you're leaving your kids. Parenting takes 24-7 attention. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You ought to be able to spot where you are coming out in your kid and it's negative. Sometimes parents jokingly look at each other and they say, that's all you. That's, that's you, woman, coming out of them. Me? And when it's your kid acting dumb, you always call it your, your spouse's child. That's your child. And we do that in humor. That's your child about to go stand by the paddle. You have to be able to spot it and be able to honestly evaluate yourself and say, that's my pride. That's my attitude. That's my sass. The other day, my sweetest, tenderest child sat at the kitchen table and said, 
holy crap. I only say it for the point, you know. And I said, Abigail Bryant. She said, what? Mommy says it. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't know if Mama was there or was coming. Either we talked to she was in the other room or we got her on the phone. I said, and Lydia said, oh, Mommy says it all the time. I said, Manda. She said, do I? Oh, yes, Mommy, you do, especially in traffic. Huh. Well, Daddy has to do some more discipling then, don't I? We had to address that, clean it up, say, all right, let's not use that word, all right? I won't beat you this time. I'll beat your mother. <laughs> Mandel said, I've heard you say it too. You have to be honest about where your problems are coming from. I had a missionary story along the same lines, and it was the mother's fault. She was fond of saying some kind of exclamation that you don't want a child to say. David made short work of Goliath as a young teenager and began to complete what no one else had been able to in five generations. How come it took five generations when David had no supernatural anointing like Samson? He was no revivalist like Samson. He was no anointed Nazarite like Samson. But somebody had to do it, and this kid said, might as well be me. How about that generation start with you and say, nobody in my family's ever been educated. Might as well start with us. Nobody in my family's ever beat alcohol. Might as well be me. Nobody in my family's ever had a beautiful marriage. Might as well be me. There was only a Goliath to kill because Samson, Eli, Samuel, and Saul all failed to conquer the enemy at their gates. Their laziness left the oppressive Philistines as an inheritance for their children, their children's children, down to the fourth and fifth generation. Unbeknownst to David, his first military encounter with a Gittite warrior named Goliath would only be the beginning of one of his greatest callings, and that was to put down the Philistines. After David had been king for about 15 years, he desired to build God a house, a magnificent temple. God forbid him to do so, but reminded him via the prophet Nathan of his real responsibility. Let's look at this long passage here in the New, English Trans or New Living Translation. David wants to build this temple that became Solomon's temple. The Lord said, you can't do it, but let me tell you something you can do for me, David. So this is the word of the Lord from Nathan the prophet to David. Now go and say to my servant, David, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I took you from tending sheep in the pasture and selected you to be the leader of my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone, and I've destroyed all your enemies before your eyes. Now I will make your name as famous as anyone who has ever lived on the earth, and I will provide a homeland for my people Israel, planting them in a secure place where they will never be disturbed. This had never been the case before. They'd always had battles on every side. It's the failure of every leader before David. David is beginning to see what needs to be done. This is what God says, I will do. David says, yeah, I'm good at war. You're right. We have disturbances on every side. You can see the image and the vision being painted for him. I can't build a temple, but what can I do? Ah, I see it. I see my calling. So many of us maybe want ministry, but we've not even pioneered peace in our home yet. We've never beat the generational crumb off our life. So we want to do something that doesn't need to be done yet because we've not secured the peace necessary to acquire it. I will provide a homeland for my people Israel, planting them in a secure place where they will never be disturbed. Evil nations won't oppress them as they've done in the past, starting from the time I appointed judges to rule my people Israel. God's acknowledging every generation has come short. 
David's realizing, I have a chance to do something that's never been done. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. David realizes, okay, but that means I have to swing the sword. And I'm sure his heart said, that's all right. I enjoy that. This is a promise to win. I just have to do the sweating. Again, our word of fake, we want to click our heels and believe we receive and do nothing. I believe I receive. I believe I receive. It takes work. Furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you, a a dynasty of kings. For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make him his, uh, make his king strong, his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. So David can see it. If I get the enemies oppressed and suppressed, my lineage can build what I want to, and my vision gets carried on after me. Most folks in the South, we don't look past summer break. And you've got to be looking towards what your legacy will be after you die. What will your kids do? Will they carry on in the gospel? Will they raise your grandkids in the fear and admonition of the Lord? Or will you be the most anointed person in your whole bloodline? I told you a while back, there's an actor, British guy. He was in the movie Frost Nixon. I saw him interviewed on a British show. And he knew that his great-grandfather was one of the revivalists of the Welsh Revival. And in this British, I think it was a BBC interview, he said, my great-grandfather was a great revivalist and evangelist. He cast out devils, healed the sick, and I think he raised the dead. He knew his lineage, but this guy's a Hollywood actor. He knew his lineage, but he was no part of it. How do you go from being a great Welsh revivalist and you lose it by the fourth generation? David had plans. He wanted to build God a great house, but the Lord had other plans for him. Nathan's prophecy revealed that the plan of God was for David to finally put down all of the surrounding oppressors and create the peace necessary for the temple project. Upon, necess- uh, excuse me, upon receiving the prophetic exhortation, I will give you rest from all your enemies, David immediately set about to fulfill his part of the promise, warfare. So the very there's a chapter, chapter 7, day, uh, chapter 8, David goes and praises God and worships him for this length of time. Then the next chapter rolls around and the next thing David does after he worships God for this tremendous prophecy, which meant work, 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 work. Verse one says, and after this, after Nathan's prophecy, David defeated and subdued the Philistines by conquering Gath, their largest town. David also conquered the land of Moab. David also destroyed the forces of uh, Hadadazer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. So he gets up from this prophecy and says, it's time to go to war. And he finishes what 400 years of judges never did. One man. One man finished what four generations of priests and judges and rulers failed to do because he was inspired. So my challenge to you, what are you leaving for your kids? Strife, porn, drugs, alcohol, laziness, poverty, debt, obesity, insecurity, timidity. What? What are you leaving for your kids? This church is celebrating 40 years of of existence next year. We've had 40 years of faith and we're still mopey, defeated, overweight, poor, in debt, insecure. We built upon 60 years of Brother Hagen. And this, what's our legacy after that? Problem is most of our doctrines in our head, not in our heart. Solomon never had to deal with the Philistines. 
The peace David secured allowed his son Solomon to proceed with building the grand temple. But what if David never bothered to do anything more with his training, power, and authority, but have parties, build chateaus, and talk about his calling? What if that's all he ever did? He would have left the Philistines undefeated and postponed the construction of the temple another generation. While David did subdue the Philistines, however, he left another Goliath to his son Solomon, sexual lust. Unfortunately, the failure to conquer this sinful enemy would condemn his lineage within just three generations. So parenting questions. What is the main Goliath God has mandated you to kill? What's your main Goliath? Everybody's got one. What will you do about it? Maybe you have Goliath and he's surrounded by a couple little midget warriors. That's typically the case. You got this one major Goliath and he's like running with three little midgets in training. Is it porn, debt, gluttony, insecurity, anger, sickness, perpetual debt? What is your Goliath? Number two, do you have a vision for your child's future? Can you see further the next school year, sports team, or holiday? What's your vision? David could see that somebody in my lineage is going to build a temple, but only if I put down all the oppressors we've been dealing with. He was motivated. He was a man driven. And once he did put down all of his oppressors, he spent the rest of his kingdom building and stockpiling the wealth necessary to build that temple. When you study the lineage in the book of Kings and Chronicles after this, David put down the Philistines and they never stuck their head out of their hole for 150 years. Not only that, they paid tribute, that means taxes, to Israel for that 150 years. He so beat them into oppression and submission, they gave him their wealth for the next 150 years. That's victory. Here's our final little section on the errancy of generational curses. I hate this doctrine because people use it as an excuse to be weird. I think I'm dealing with a generational curse. You're not. You're just carnal. You're just lazy. You're just sinful. If you got a porn issue, you didn't inherit as a curse from your dad. You learned to watch it with your dad, and you picked up your own devil. The doctrine of generational curses became very popular in the late 1990s as Christian TV found new ways to raise money. I was here and watched it. I watched TBN a lot in those days. It was everybody's talking point, and it raised lots of money. Because everybody's superstitious, and nobody wants to be bound. And if I can blame it on a voodoo hex from my grandma, then I will, because that means I don't have to take responsibility. And if a miracle faith seed offering and a prayer line can take the responsibility off of me, then I'll give you 100 bucks, and I'll fall down under the power and wake up just as weird as before. This doctrine states that any obstacle or hindrance a believer may be facing might be due to a generational curse. In other words, a Christian's battle with sickness, lust, anger, or infertility could be the result of sin from previous generations. My grandfather was a sinner, and therefore I have uh, no victory today. But did you get born again? Well, yeah. That's all the victory you need. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. All things are of God. But when you don't know your Bible, you file, fall sucker to charismatic shenanigans. And the only person that prospers is the weird preacher. This doctrine is not biblically founded. The teaching uses Exodus 20 verse 5 as a, as a proof text. Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto idols, nor serve them. 
For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the inequity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. So if we were to be very, very ignorant, we might be able to say, we could find an inequity to visit upon you only as far back as your grandfather or great-grandfather if they worshipped idols. Did your grandfather worship totem poles or Buddha statues? No, no, he was just a drunken womanizer. Okay, well, that's not the idol we're talking about here. And if that was your great-grandfather or great-great-grandfather, then you're the fifth generation, you're exempt. Even the text is so limited in scope, and yet it didn't stop Christian television from milking it for a couple hundreds of million dollars of offerings. This verse provides for a curse upon idol worshipers, but only to the third or fourth generation, not in perpetuity. And only to those that hate God. And if you don't hate God, you're free. Amen. All you have to say is, Jesus, I love you. I don't want those idols. I don't, I don't endorse my grandparents at all. I don't ind- endorse the Native Americanism of my grandparents or the Irish drinking of my grandparents or the, the victim mindset of my grandparents. I don't endorse any of it, Lord. I, you're my father now. That's all it takes to break this. If there's anything to be broken. I tell you, charismatics have the worst doctrine on the planet. Oh, it's so painful to watch and listen to. And it makes the real power of God look bad because there's some power among charismatics, but not good doctrine. Anybody who can smell good doctrine doesn't want to have anything to do with charismatics because they're so inundated with horrible doctrine. And therefore, the power of God and true revival gets a bad name because it's mixed in with horrible charismatic teaching. This concept is quoted again in Exodus 34, 7. But then, strangely enough, it is rescinded in both Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So the whole concept is, if you sin, your children pay the price, which is true if they're at home. You know, If you sell crack out of your house, your kids will be taken away from you. Your kids have to pay the price for your sin, but not spiritually. So Jeremiah 31 says this, the people will no longer quote this proverb, the parents have eaten sour grapes with the children's mouths pucker at the taste. The Lord says, all people will die for their own sins now. Those who eat the sour grapes will be the ones whose mouths pucker. And Ezekiel 18, 4 says, For all people are mine to judge, both parents and children alike, and this is my rule. The person who sins is the one who will die. You can no longer blame grandma for your weirdness. It's not a generational curse. It's not a voodoo hex. We don't do the juju thing. It doesn't happen to us. We're blood-bought. We're blood-covered. We're spirit-filled. We live holy. There's no such thing as a curse on your life anymore unless you're invoking it with present-day living. Quit blaming your past or where you come from. Pastor Vaughn had this story of the lady in our church. She was from New Orleans. Her family was wealthy, part of the kind of the mafia down there. She became convinced that she had a a French quarter voodoo hex on her lap. That's why she had uh, cancer. And Pastor Vaughn said, that's crazy. You're blood-bought, blood-washed. She would not believe it. What happened to her, Rick? She died of the cancer she believed was a voodoo hex from New Orleans. Dumb. All you have to do is say, nope, that's not for me. She believed it till it came and manifested on her life. Rick, was it? she didn't even have it at first. She was convinced there was one put on her. There was no evidence of cancer. She just believed because she'd heard, and all of a sudden there came cancer out of nowhere, and it killed her. Yeah, those are back in the old days of our church. Hopefully we have better doctrine than that now. When I was in Nigeria, we saw these demons fly over Pastor Akwoko's compound. And they were like these white orbs. I said, what is that? He said, oh, that's just Ika. 
And I said, they were talking about like, oh, those are just like egrets or birds. That's how common it was. I said, what, what are they? He said, those are demons. And I said, from what? He said, one of the witches has apparently set a curse out. He said, those egrets, three of them, they'll land on somebody's house and something will happen. The house will burn down. Someone will murder somebody. They'll die in their sleep. That's how it works. That's juju. I said, okay. He said, oh, don't worry about us. We're Christians. They won't land here. It's that simple. And even the lady that was visiting with us, she's like, yeah, it's Ica. It's no big deal. We're Christians. We don't worry about those. The demonology was just common to them. And so was the solution. We're Christians. We serve God. They won't land here. They they can't. (laughs) Oh, but I have a generational curse. Well, then enjoy it. But I don't. Not at all. You might have a demon visiting you, but you can Rebuke that thing. It's that simple. Like, nope. Sorry, devil. I'm born again, spirit-filled. I don't know what you're doing here. You got the wrong house. You're looking for my church Christ neighbor. He's right over there. No, don't go to his house either. I pray for him, even though he doesn't like me. (laughs) Furthermore, the Exodus 20 passage continues, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. How do you break any curse, even if under, under the Old Testament? You love God, keep his commandments. No curse. The word curse is not even mentioned in this passage anyway. It's all about the paycheck for sin. No paycheck for sin if you love God and keep his commandments. The subject of leaving Goliath as an inheritance is not a generational curse. It is a matter of failing to obtain victory for our families and setting our children up to advance the kingdom of God as they prepare to leave our homes. So go find your family's Goliath and take his head off and get ready for the next thing God has for you. Amen? Father, we thank you for these lessons. Help us in our parenting. May we set up this next generation for great glory. In Jesus' name, amen.